0: Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Syrtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest was upon us, all hope of our being saved, Was at last abandoned. Since they'd been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail along Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, An angel stood before me, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said to me, Paul, don't be afraid. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island."
1: Bibles with me this morning to Acts chapter 27, and I say that with a slight tear in my eye. We're almost done with the book of Acts. 28 weeks in this book we are spending, and I really hope that it drives home this lesson, that the church of Jesus is built by Jesus who uses men and women who are following after the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to see is the continuing journeys, in fact, we're coming on to the very ends, the last of what we have for recorded history for the Apostle Paul and how God used even some of the most crazy circumstances to build his church. Now, today we're talking about shipwrecks. And uh, I don't know if, you know, you you put all these pieces together, but we actually spend a lot of time... uh, creating what the worship set is for that week to kind of coalesce around a certain idea or drive our, our heart and our thoughts and our worship towards a certain topic. And and today a lot of it the theme was about storms, trials, uh, shipwrecks that happen in our lives. In fact, you sang these words earlier that the waves and winds still know his name. You know what that's a reference to? Right? It's the story in the Gospels where Jesus was sleeping and his, his disciples were kind of freaking out because the storm was getting, you know, worse and worse and worse. And, and they have this cry of their hearts where they say, Jesus, we're about to die. Don't you even care? And friends, isn't that just what happens in our hearts whenever things go wrong? Right, All of a sudden, things start looking upside down, and the world is a little topsy-turvy, and we, we can't really see what's clearly ahead, and kind of the, the knee-jerk reaction of the soul is to question, God, do you, do you even care? Do you even see? Do you even understand what's happening? See, but on that story... It kind of has the pretty bow in it that we all hope to see in our lives, right? Jesus kind of stands up, maybe a little frustrated. They interrupted his nap, you know? I mean, the guy's a busy guy. He's doing a lot of preaching, and, and he gets up, and he simply speaks the word, and the storm calms. And see, that's kind of the moment. That's, that's the sort of storm that, that I want to be in, all right? You know, one where it looks a little dicey for a few minutes, and you kind of have a little bit of freak out. It doesn't show too much. You know, but all of a sudden, Jesus comes in, and and the bow's on it, and boy, I mean, everything just kind of, you get to write the memoir, right? It looks good. You make the post. You know, you give the testimony, and, and that's the sort of storm I want to be in. But see, Acts 27 is different because Jesus didn't calm the storm. And I'll tell you what, friends, there are few things that will try your faith. Like when Jesus does not calm the storm in your life. You know, all of us have storms. All of us will face challenges, difficulties, the unexpected. That is part of what it means to to live the human life, right? But also even the Christian life. Job says that just as the sparks come up from the flames, so a man is destined for trial, for trouble, for tribulation. It is baked into this whole deal. There are storms in life. And there are some of those times where we go into these and we pray, and Jesus calms it with the word. But friends, I got to tell you, most of the storms you read about in this book don't end that way. What do you do in that moment? Put a pin in that. So, it's summertime. For those of you who are maybe trying to think about, you know, a little bit, of, I want to get in, I want to maybe get back in shape. I want to kind of get back to the routine. You know, we've all been in a weird funk with COVID and all this. Maybe it looks like walking a bit more for you. One thing I've been trying to do is run. And I got to tell you, I'm like a pretty terrible runner. Okay. Pretty terrible runner. But I've been trying it, you know. And, and, and I learned something interesting about running. You know, when you first start, whether it's lifting weights, running, whatever, this is what you tend to think. Oh, it's the lifting weights that makes me stronger. Do you know what? That's actually not true. Did you know that? Actually, lifting weights or, or running or doing some sort of like physical activity actually breaks your body down. Makes little tears in the muscles, right? It pushes your cardiovascular system further than it's typically used to going. See, the resistance part of it is only half of the equation. Do you know where your body actually grows, where it becomes stronger, where it becomes where it has more endurance? When? When you sleep. Did you know that? See. This is how this thing goes, right? This is a a truism in life, right? Without any sort of resistance, we as people start to degrade. We get slower, right? We get a little bit more out of shape. That is just how life works. When you go up against things that that provide resistance, that provide some, some challenge, that provide some workout for you, and then you rest, you actually become stronger. You have more endurance. You become more fit. You get more mental clarity, right? This is how this works physically for your body. It's two parts. There does have to be some sort of a resistance, some sort of a trial, some sort of a challenge. But then on the other side of that, there's got to be rest. And When those two things happen, you become stronger. Here's the premise for today. That principle is not just true physically for you. It's actually true spiritually. See, we're, we're told this in James. Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you come to various sorts of trials. When and why? Why should I be happy that life is hard? Okay, James, you're telling me I should all of a sudden feel this, like, wellspring of joy when when a storm is in my life? Why would I do that? Because it develops something within us. Why do we go through storms? Or why is it when we're in storms and we're praying for that pretty bow of resolution that God doesn't choose to do that? Maybe, friends, it's because there is something more for you. There is a spiritual maturity. There is a strength. There is an endurance of the soul to be gained by going through this. But here's the catch. you got to go through it well. You have to go through it well. Simply going through it does not produce spiritual results because remember, it's two parts. Right? It's like saying this, right? With age comes Wisdom. I disagree with that. (laughs) I disagree with that. With age and wisdom to learn from those experiences, that is where you find wisdom. Simply the fact that you go through a storm in life does not produce the spiritual endurance that James is talking about in chapter 1 of his book. No, see, when you go through a storm, there has to be Something that you're learning, something that you're doing, there has to be rest alongside the resistance, the challenge, the push against your soul. So here's what I want us to do. We're going to read through Acts 27, and we are going to try to cover every single word. Um, We're really committed to teaching the Word of God and helping you understand the text so that you can continue to study it on your own. We're going to walk through it. It's a a lot of interesting details. There's some people in this room, right, that are going to really geek out over all the nautical stuff. Maybe someone in this section right over there. Um, For the rest of you, maybe it's a little, okay, what's happening? It's a lot of geography. It's a lot of nautical things. But but I want us to understand what's going on because Paul is going through some crazy trials in this. The storms that Paul is enduring is not simply the physical wind and rain, right? Right? Paul is actually going through all sorts of storms in life, all sorts of difficult situations. And when we look at each one of those, I want to give you maybe a scripture to meditate on. If that is the storm that you're in, if as you listen to this, you go, Phew, I can really empathize with Paul in this moment, then there's going to be a scripture for you to meditate on, to rest in, and to see God in the midst of your storm turn with me to acts chapter twenty seven acts chapter twenty seven so sad to leave acts I may just start back over with chapter one after this i don't know uh, it's it's been great acts twenty seven now Paul has just finished through three kind of sham trials. His latest was with King Agrippa. He has declared that he is going to go and present his case before Caesar himself. Now, this is Nero, by the way, within our time frame, within the Roman Empire. So not necessarily the sort of guy you want to spend time with, but he is the Caesar at this time. So Paul is being loaded on a ship to make his way to Italy to await his presentation before Caesar Nero himself. This is what happens on that journey. Verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius and embarking from a ship of uh, Adromtium when they set to sail the ports to the coast of Asia we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus of Macedonia from Thessalonica. The next day, we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Now, pause with me for a moment. A lot of names, a lot of ports. What's kind of happening? So this is what it it was like uh, at that time. Within the Roman military, there wasn't a huge distinction between those forces that were on the land and for the navy. In fact, Those that were in charge of a cohort oftentimes had responsibilities over both. Now, Paul is being put onto a prison ship. This is a group of people that are going to be going from uh, various parts around the country. They're brought in port, kept in bondage, they're put on a ship, and they're going to make their way over all the way to Rome to face trial. Now, We find out later in the text, this ship is carrying over 276 people, right? It is a lot of people. It's a lot of prisoners coming from a lot of different places. And all of a sudden, Paul feels uh, like he's just in a completely different world. He's gone from two years, over two years of being in house arrest by himself, being brought out and changed. Maybe someone comes, visits him, brings him food in the prison system. Uh, They didn't provide you food. Friends and family had to do it, right? So he sees people every now and then. But I mean, all of a sudden, can you imagine two years of being under house arrest? All of a sudden, you're, you're carted to a port, and you're in a big line of people walking up a plank to the ship. All of a sudden, you're no longer Paul, right? You're prisoner number 136, Step forward. Confirm your details. You're locked up over there. What a shift. What a change of life. A- and all of a sudden, this, this thing where he was preaching before kings, he was before all these churches, now he's prisoner, 146, right? Surrounded by people he doesn't know. Going to a place that, that he hasn't been, on a ship that he hasn't been. Life is completely different. It looks totally different. You have to imagine that Paul kind of feels a little, maybe lost in the crowd at this point. Have you ever felt that? You ever woken up and you're going, what am I doing here? Where am I? Does anyone even know my name? Does anyone even care? Have you ever felt lost in a crowd? You know what's so interesting about New York City? New York City can be one of the loneliest places in the world. And that's such an odd thing to say, right? Because you go, well, wait a minute. I mean, there's so many people. There's so many things going on all the time, right? Traffic, 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 all the time. But you know, there's something that is is really weighing on the soul. When you are walking past thousands of people who don't give a second look, they don't know your name, they don't care to know your name, they're never going to see you again, you are faceless in a crowd. See, Paul finds himself... All of a sudden, prisoner number 146. And the people who wanted to hear him, the people who cared about Paul, all the things that he has going on, not around. There's your spot on the bench. Have you ever felt that way? You know, what's so amazing in this moment, this difficulty in Paul's life, even in this when you feel totally alone and and nameless and like just someone in the crowd that no one seems to honestly care about. You know, God provided for him. God actually showed tremendous care for him. What does it say? It says a couple things. One, that the centurion, Augustus, it's a very general uh, from his army, the cohort, his name was Julius, that he actually allowed him to bring some friends on. That was a huge deal. You were not, this isn't like a pleasure cruise, okay? This wasn't, you know, the Disney princess or something. It's a prison ship. You don't just kind of be like, oh, I've got plus two, you know? It doesn't work like that. It it was totally against the rules, out of the norm, but there was something about the centurion that he saw Paul and God did something in his heart and, and, and he chose to show grace to Paul as a channel from God himself. You know what's interesting? Throughout your Bible, centurions, those who were over 100 men, there were 60 in a cohort, so 60,000 men in a Roman legion, one of these top people, right, who work with people all the time, when you read the New Testament, they are frequently people of faith, right? Think through some of those stories in the New Testament sometime, showing amazing faith. And in this moment, Paul... Prisoner 146 finds out that God cares deeply for him. Friends, if you feel in a storm and you feel like no one cares, does anyone see me? Does anyone know? Does anyone care? Am I just a number? Am I just a warm body? I want you to meditate on this verse from Matthew 10. Here's how you can rest in the midst of that storm. Jesus says this, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs on your head are numbered. I can imagine Paul seeing their feeling faceless, nameless, a number. You know what God's word says? God actually cares for you, specifically you, so much that he even knows things that you don't know about yourself. See, this is what happens when the storms in life come. We go, God, do you see? God, do you know? God, do you even care? And God goes, I see. In fact, I see so much more than you even know. How many people know the number of hairs on their head? If you shave your head bald, you're not allowed to answer this question. (laughs) (laughs) How many people know that? God does. Friends, God knows more about your situation than you can possibly imagine. You're not faceless. You're not nameless. There's a God in heaven who knows and he cares deeply. Paul experiences that even in the midst of this storm. Look at verse 4. And putting out to sea... There we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. You're going to see that come up over and over in this chapter. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra of Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us aboard. Now, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus, and when the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lassia. Now, everyone picturing all these stops in their head? No? (laughs) I was thinking the same thing when they're thinking they're teaching the children where Rwanda is on a map. I was thinking, I wonder if we should teach the adults that, (laughs) right? (laughs) That would be good, right? A little geography lesson here. That'd be helpful. But there's all these terms and places here. But I want to highlight a couple things. One, you see repeatedly we had difficulty. The wind was against us. It was a challenge. We moved slowly. The wind was pushing the opposite direction. Now, here's what happened. Here's what's happening. They did not have private passenger ships back then. If it wasn't for military use for soldiers, it was commercial. So they changed ships here. And here's this Roman centurion who is in charge of delivering these, I don't know how many of the 276. The majority of them were prisoners, but you've got some crew, you've got some other soldiers on board as well. And his responsibility, Julius's job, is to get them all the way to Rome. And you know what happens if he doesn't? He personally serves the sentence of all those people combined, which is pretty much death at that point, right? Motivation to do your job. So that's his job. But when you don't have passenger ships, what do you do? So they they come to another port. And they change ships. Now, this ship, which we'll see, it shows us later in the text, is actually a grain vessel. It was a vessel that came up from Egypt and came all the way out to Rome. See, Rome uh, actually had a contract. They had an international trade agreement with Egypt. Egypt provided most of the wheat um, and uh, other products like that that was eaten in Rome. So they had these grain ships that would just perpetually kind of take this whole coast, making the way from Egypt to Rome. And so these things are huge. In fact, this was the largest ship at the time. They're over 180 feet long, right? We've got numerous historical records of these ships. 108 feet long, about 44 feet deep, 60 feet wide. They have one singular main mast in the middle. They have no kind of rudder system in the back. They use two giant oars Uh, alongside the center of the ship. And it had some benefits. This giant, like, 2,500 tonnage ship could move huge amounts of grain from Egypt all the way to Rome. And it was very sturdy. It's It's a very sturdy ship. But here's what you lost in that. When you had oars in the middle, right, you didn't have this rudder system in the back, you couldn't maneuver well. See, today when you sail, you you kind of tack along the wind and you move and you catch it different ways so that you can keep adjusting however the wind's going. This thing could not do it. It went one direction. And you just had to kind of play around with the oars. You know what that meant? You didn't have much control. So they load all these people up on this ship. They sailed slowly for a number of days. They sailed with difficulty. And the wind did not allow us to go further. Because the boat had no capability to adjust and compensate for the wind, they were at the mercy of what the wind was doing. Look at verse 9. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. See, even back then, people went to Phoenix for the winter. Um... Different Phoenix, different Phoenix, okay? Uh, you see, here's what's happening. They're on this big ship, right? Moving slowly, they can't make adjustments. All of a sudden, it is around uh, the Day of Atonement. That means this is happening sometime mid October. Now, back then, and still it's dangerous today, but back then, you did not sail the Mediterranean in the fall and winter. Once you got to late fall, early winter, the winds became so harsh that they just stopped at all. So this is kind of like you're on the edge of tourism season here, right? (laughs) Get a little bit of a cheaper ticket, but the wind wind can turn bad really quickly. And so Paul stands up and goes, "Whoa, guys, I I, I mean, I really think we need to stop because I I really believe this thing is going to go south. But the captain listens more to the pilot of the ship than he does to Paul. Frankly, I don't blame him, right? He is the pilot of the ship. (laughs) Paul's not, okay? But he makes the wrong call. Why would you risk that much cargo? Why would you risk that many lives? Well, because they were the main source of grain. Rome incentivized and said, any late season runners for deliveries, you get a bonus. You make that thing in, you get a bonus, right? Now, money is driving the decision, not safety of the people, Money is the decision maker here. And so they set sail. And they say this. They were actually in a place called Fairhaven. Doesn't that sound nice? I mean, if you were going to spend the winter somewhere, doesn't that sound nice? But see, this is the thing about Fairhaven. It was kind of a dull city, right? It was a tiny place. The harbor was enough for them to winter in. But you're thinking about spending months With, you know, 276 people, most of which are prisoners, in like a podunk small town. And you know what they sit there and do? I don't want to be in Fairhaven. This isn't where I want to be. It's boring, right? I don't know if you know much about the reputation of sailors, they're not generally small, slow-town people, okay? <laughs> They're looking for a little bit more, especially if you're going to be there for months and months and months. And they look at this thing and they go, I can make some money, Phoenix is a much more happening place. You know what? Fairhaven says this, it is not a good place to winter. Why? Money and excitement. It actually was a very good place to winter, it was a safe place. Paul says, guys, I think we need to stop. And they take a vote, and they say, move on. They find themselves somewhere that they didn't plan to be. You know, a second storm that happens in life, not just feeling like a nameless face in the crowd. There are times in life, friends, when you are out of control and you are not where you want to be. Anyone ever experienced that? Don't raise your hand. Point to someone else. That's true of that person. Yeah, they told me that earlier. I think everyone should know that, right? There are times in your life where you feel out of control and you are not where you want to be. I think it is a very apt metaphor, not just a reality, that Paul is on this giant slow lumbering ship that is at the mercy of the winds. And when they say, we want to go this way, and the wind goes, tough luck, you're going to go this way, guess what happens? They're out of control. They're not where they want to be. And, and they end up in this place called Fairhaven, right? This, this cute little port town, it's kind of sleepy, a little boring, but it's safe, right? And they sit there and go, I don't want to be here. This wasn't what I planned. Are you kidding? <laughs> Spending like like four months in this place? Not gonna do it. Not gonna do it. We're gonna press on. There are times when you find yourself where you don't wanna be because you've been out of control. The things you're trying to grasp at, the stuff you're trying to control, the calls you make, the investments you do to force your life to go in the direction you're looking to do it, and all of a sudden out of nowhere comes just this big wind that seems to put you adrift, and you find yourself where you don't wanna be. You ever been there? checking people out, the store, going, why am I doing this? Right? Seeing in a cubicle, looking across the, the coffee table at somebody, and going, why am I here? I don't want to be here. I don't want my life to look like this. I had plans. Where did you think you would be at this age in your life? Curious. Right? Where are those things that you go, this is not what I wanted? See, because oftentimes we don't want a port like Fairhaven. But here's actually an interesting lesson for us. You know what God gives us? God often gives us the destination, but not the journey. Paul was told specifically by God, you will go to Rome. You will stand before Caesar. But you know what he didn't tell him about? Fairhaven. (laughs) You know what he didn't tell him about? A prison ship. You know he didn't tell him about? A shipwreck that was going to happen. What Jesus said was, Paul, here's the end. Here's where you're going. Christian, God has said to you, there is an end. There is a heaven. There is a Savior. And when you see him, you will be like him. But he didn't tell you the journey. You know what's so crazy about this? God's grace is often... A harbor, not a destination. God's grace is actually often a harbor. Those places where we look around and we go, Why am I here? God, God, you, you told me a destination. Here I am, stuck in Fairhaven for way longer than I want to be. God's grace often looks like a harbor. Pray for the destination but praise God for the harbor. Pray for the destination, friends. When you find yourselves in the middle of a storm, not where you want to be, out of control, pray for the destination. But praise God for the harbor maybe a verse to help you rest, right? Because you need resistance, you need challenge, but to grow through it, not simply be tossed to and fro and you come out the same kind of wreck that you were before you went into this deal. How do you grow in these storms? You know what? If this is your storm, maybe it sounds like this. Meditating on Psalm 23, where the psalmist says this, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Friends, there's a harbor There is a table, there is a place, but make no mistake, there is still a battle outside. The psalmist does not say, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, we have an awesome seven-course tasting, we pair it with wines, and then when we get up, we're no longer on the battlefield. It's done, right? It's amazing. That's not actually the promise. See, because grace often looks like a harbor. You prepare a table before me in the very presence of my enemies. And God, when I get up from this table, there's still a battle to fight. There's still an enemy ahead. But God gives space to rest, to heal, and to be able to go back out and face that enemy that's still staring you down. Pray for the destination and praise God for the harbor. Look at verse 13 as we come to the end of this chapter. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor, sailing along creek, close to the shore. Remember, they outvoted Paul. The wind kind of dies down. It's going from the south. They go, ha, this is it. This is the moment. Everybody set sail. But soon, a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave it and were driven along. Running under a lee of a small island, uh, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began to next day to jest in the cargo. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their hands. When neither the sun nor the stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hopes of our being saved were at last abandoned. Verse 21, since they'd been without food for a long time, Paul stood up to them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. That was the great, like, I told you so moment, okay? I don't know if Paul should have said that, if that was the most mature thing, honestly, but he kind of does. He leads, he leads with that foot, right? Men, you totally should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incur this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. He's speaking to mostly non-Christians and non-Jews. And behold, God has granted you... I'm sorry, verse 24. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men. For I have faith. Underline that. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have told. But... Friends, here it is. This is the real grind of this whole thing. I have faith. I know the destination. God has told me that I will stand before Caesar, and I am a man of faith. But we must, what? Run aground. We must run aground On some islands what do you do when you've pulled out all the stops and it isn't stopping maybe it looks like meditating on this Romans 8 for those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose what do you do when you've pulled out all the stops, you've done everything you've canned, you've tossed every bit of thing overboard, you've dropped the mask, you face towards the teeth of the storm, and you are just going wherever it takes you? What do you do? Friends, I have faith. But Jesus isn't me this storm. No, he's going to meet us in it. We must run aground. Maybe it looks like meditating on this. All things work together for good. Do you mean to tell me, even greedy ship captains who are willing to risk the life of all the people on board just so you can get a bonus check? Are you meaning to tell me, this centurion who doesn't listen to some really good advice from Paul, can God work even through political manipulation, people's bad decisions, someone gambling with things that causes you consequences? All things. God can work all things together for good. Look at the very end as this closes. When the 14th night had come and were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, sailors suspected they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further, they took on a sounding and found 15 fathoms. What does that imply? Anyone? You're going to hit ground, people, right? It's getting dicey here, right? They're, they're going along the coast. and fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. Why were they praying? Because here's the thing. Ships at that time did not put down anchor to survive in a storm like that. The anchor would never hold. It would never hold. This is, this is the most desperate thing that you can do at this point. So they drop anchor, and they pray for a day to come. And when the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors for the bow, I love that, I'll be right back. I'm just checking on these anchors here. Um, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day, That you have continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair will perish from the head of any one of you. And when they said these things, he took bread, giving thanks to God in his presence, broke it, and began to eat. They were all encouraged, ate some food. We were all 276 passengers on the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing the wheat into the sea. You know... As they come and they shipwreck on the souls, they, they, they put down a uh, plank and they, they start to move out of the ship and go on to this random island that they've crashed on. This should spell disaster. A ship that is wooden that runs aground into this narrow uh, body of, of um, kind of some sandbar that happens when the waves of a storm are battering against it, this thing should absolutely break apart. And in fact, you want to know something interesting? There are people who dispute. A lot of people study this text for what ancient navigating over the oceans is like. It's a fascinating and bizarrely specific tale, right? Even on Christians, look at this. But this is a sticking point. Because they go, wait a minute, this is very unrealistic. You're telling me a wooden ship actually crashes into a sandbar and doesn't break apart even though all the water's going like that? That's crazy. There is no ground or sandbar that will hold a ship like that in place. It would have to be some, like, really crazy thick mud. And you know what? Mud like that is not around a shoreline because if the water goes, it moves it all away. Do you know what happens when people go to this place and they look at it today? You know what they found in that water? Something really, really rare. You know what it was? Mud. Mud. Unlike anywhere else along all the rest of the coast, unlike anywhere else that you're going to find in the Mediterranean, very specifically in this one spot is this really bizarre kind of geological situation where this really thick mud is there. In fact, there was a British ship that crashed in there in the 19th century, and they said this, when you stick your anchor in there, it will not move just as if it were embedded into the rock. Friends, what was it that saved that ship? Mud. Friends, what was it that saved that ship? God. As the worship team comes up, I don't know what storms you're going through in life. Here's what I do know. I do know that for those who are going, God, does anyone see? Does anyone know? Does anyone care? God cares for you tremendously. He even knows things about you and about your situation that you don't know. And it's not just that he cares, right? He does see. He does know. He does care. But he also is working all things together for good. It doesn't mean all things that happen to you are good. There are shipwrecks in life. There are trials. There are challenges. But God is going to work it for your good. What do you do when Jesus doesn't calm the storm? Meditate on God's word. Know he loves you. Find a space, a harbor that you can be thankful for. And trust that even if it's something as ridiculous as mud, that shouldn't be anywhere else in the whole world that God will actually use anything to bring about his glory and your good. Father in heaven, give us faith, faith to sail through even a storm that's not calmed. God, would you work in our hearts, give us courage, give us faith, and we will praise you for it. And all God's people said, amen. Stand with us as we close in song.